It is good to be back. Happy Monday, everybody. And I'm going to try something different with this because I just can't give up my long intros. I love them too much. I love talking to you guys. So if you want to skip straight to the interview and you don't want to listen to me rant for a bit, skip about six minutes forward. You can use that little 15 second button. Otherwise, if you don't mind listening for a bit, enjoy this intro and enjoy the episode. This is an interview with Dr. Chris Morris, Director of Performance Science over all athletics at University of Kentucky. And this was a conversation that made me legitimately grateful to have a podcast because it opens the doors to have conversations like this where I would have been extremely engaged just having this conversation one-on-one. I was extremely interested in what he was saying and selfishly it was fun to just be able to ask questions and and engage with someone who has such a high level knowledge and, and experience in the world of human performance. The drive for this entire podcast has been my, I guess you could call it, obsession for what prompts and sustains action. And if it was just motivation, then we'd all be in a much better spot because motivational videos get a billion views a day on YouTube. Motivational books sell by the millions of copies every year, and that's not fully getting the job done. If it were just genetics and some people were just predisposed to having more action-oriented behavior, then nobody in history would have ever struggled with something and then overcame certain weaknesses and his or her DNA or personality to build something great. And we've already seen countless examples of that happening. So the genetics theory is out. The motivation theory is out. And that leaves us with a few things that I'm aware of that actually help push action. And one of them is understanding mechanism. And what I mean by that is just having an understanding of the positive or negative ramifications of a certain behavior that we do for ourselves or towards other people. Something generic like, oh, this is good for you. That's not enough to drive behavioral change, especially when that behavioral change is difficult and it's not something that you've historically done before. But if somebody can explain to you, hey, this is actually what's happening inside your body when you do this change, and this is how it's gonna play out from a longevity standpoint or from an energy level standpoint, day to day, that sort of connects the dots in our brains where we go, okay, now I actually kind of take that serious and I I think I'm gonna begin making that change. It's similar to communication. If you're in a relationship or have been in one, something vague like, hey, when you do that, that pisses me off, that generally doesn't accomplish that much. But if you can communicate clearly the cause of why that pisses you off, generally, it conversations go a little bit better. Hey, when you when you say that, it makes me think this. And you know, now I think that you believe this about me. Is that actually what you believe about me, etc. Generally leads to a more productive conversation. And I think that's very true about health. So if we can start to connect the dots a little bit and explain why certain things are good or bad for us uh, inherently, then we'll be more likely to make those changes naturally. And so this conversation with Dr. Chris Morris, he breaks down things like, why should we exercise? And exercise is a general term, but getting your heart rate elevated, engaging in certain types of activity, whether it's, you know, surfing, walking, orange theory, Pilates, lifting weights, you know, human movement on the whole. What is this doing for us psychologically? What's actually happening in the brain? What's happening in the body? What are the benefits that come if, if you start to do this regularly for the rest of your day? So you let's say you train for 30 minutes a day. What's the other 23 hours look like? How are our bodies more efficient? 
We also talk about what's happening in the brain, in the nervous system, when you engage in some sort of mindfulness. Uh, the word meditation gets thrown around. Uh, if you remember my interview with Eric Corum, he asked me if I meditate and I said no, but it, this is a broad term and it can be applied in a lot of ways. This can be something as simple as just spacing out for a bit and concentrating on your breathing, not thinking about anything specific, you're not chanting or throwing rocks. Um, I'm not sure if that's something people do when they meditate. I don't know where throwing rocks came from, but there's no rock throwing that I'm aware of. So he breaks these things down. And if there's any point in this discussion where you find yourself going, what words are you saying right now? We generally draw it back and start to simplify things and explain things in, you know, terms that make more sense to people that haven't spent their entire life being <laughs> director of performance for elite athletes. So if you can hang in there, we, we, we try to give tools and he, he does a really good job, I think, of communicating clearly and simply. So we talk about real benefits from a health and energy standpoint from a longevity standpoint to exercise and how to increase your resilience mentally and physically. So the actual science behind building your capacity so that you can handle more stress. Running from stress is not the answer unless it's a stress that is clearly bad for you in life. You're in a bad relationship or in a situation that's not conducive to your health as a human. But generally, stress is unavoidable if you want to accomplish something meaningful in life. And it's also unavoidable just by way of things happen, you know? And so how do we increase our resilience to where, you know, Eric Corum in our interview said, it's not about doing less, it's about doing more and having it not cost you as much. And so we talk about that in this episode. We get into a bunch more. We talk about why you should care about controlling your blood sugar levels, whether or not you have been diagnosed with diabetes, why this is important for longevity, he explains what heart rate variability is, and I think that's something that's interesting because that term might mean nothing to you, but if you wear a Fitbit or an Apple Watch or a Whoop Band or an Aura Ring, it's tracking that data, and this is something that you can collect and get meaningful insight from. So, really good conversation. I'm going to be done ranting now, but I hope you enjoy this interview with Dr. Chris Morris. Was, yeah. Holy cow. Yeah. What were you when I was there? Oh gosh, I was doing like little physique shows then. So I was floating around probably 235, maybe 240. So I'm up at 280 right now. I was on the deck cell last week at 11.5%. So. <laughs> in this thing out. I remember I have a very specific memory of coming in to do my Omega Wave one day. And you were sitting there like getting ready to test me, just gassed. Yeah. And I was like, what, what's going on? And you said, I haven't had any carbs or fat in like two weeks or something. <laughs> it was probably like the last, yeah, it was the last two weeks before my show. I just wasn't ready yet. And so I had to like crash into it. So full on depletion. Yeah. Don't, don't, uh, I don't remember, like enjoy those, those days. Those are not fun. So yeah, I don't think you would recommend that to anyone. Mm -mm. How are you doing? Are you still in California? Yeah. We're in South Orange County. Nice. Loving so, it out here. Are you still involved? Yeah. Yeah. How's that yeah. going? It's been really good. It's been uh, obviously took an interesting turn last year. Just like, you know, university budgets were frozen. Pro budgets were frozen for the most part. Um, but there was a big push with military and tactical, which helped. Yeah. And then it seems like things are kind of recalibrating a bit, which is nice. 
Yeah. No, I mean, even here, let's see, we're projecting like a $40 million deficit from this year. Wow. Is that mainly from ticket sales or? Yeah, revenue. Okay. So, I mean, you don't have any fans. I mean, we have, what was it? I don't remember what the percentage was. Something 20% or something, I think it was. So, not going to cut it. No. But. No. Yeah, I was curious. Actually, I didn't know if if the tv deals were affected at all just because it's like a different feel now watching football mm -hmm. um but i guess it's mainly just tickets and attendance yeah i thought maybe the tv deals would have gotten better because there would have been more maybe more games televised because you know people are playing on like odd nights like thursdays and fridays and so they're getting more more coverage but i don't know how all that shakes out i know we were the only team in the sec to play every single game without missing a week wow so that was rough. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah, especially these guys are detrained for the most part. Just yeah. brutal. Yeah. I was really worried about that. We we had a decent amount of time to get these guys ready for the season, but the NFL guys was like, this is gonna be a disaster. You could just you could I could have you could have bet so much money that the amount of injuries were just gonna pile up. Yeah. It's like these guys are just not prepared. Yeah. Hopefully cool. we're back to a normal um normal year this year. Yeah. Fingers crossed. Man, well, I want to I want to spend most of this conversation just picking your brain because it's a good opportunity for me and whoever's listening. But I do want just for people who are listening to have a bit of context of just the level of experience that you have in human performance and sort of managing athletes. I've mentioned before, like managing athletes crosses over to managing your everyday people. And, you know, it's not going to be a massive majority of elite athletes listening, but I think that the everyday person can get a ton from from what you have to say. So could you just give like a brief rundown of what led you to where you are and, you know, your experience with athletes and, and all that? Right. Yeah, no. So I walked on uh, to the football team back in 2002 and uh, 2006 here at UK, you know, relatively untrained in high school. I, I was a kid. I played soccer, football, and what was it? Football, I wrestled and then tennis in the spring. So I never really trained. I mean, you're always playing a sport. And so you get to UK and you get thrown in this weight room with, you know, a bunch of athletes that are far superior genetically. And what you notice really quickly is that there's some guys that just look at weights and get big and strong. And there's other people like me who, you know, are often hurt, um, you know, little tears, little nicks, little knacks there. And so, you know, really quickly, I learned that, you know, genetics plays a massive role in athletic development. And, you know, you have to play the genetic card you've been dealt. And sometimes it's not fair. I mean, you look at guys like, Bud Dupree, and you remember when you were there with Bud, like Bud would come in, he'd be out drinking until two o'clock in the morning and it'd make way with perfect greens across the board. And you just don't find people like that. <laughs> That's not normal. And so I, I was really fortunate when I started my PhD program to really get the opportunity to work with Omega Wave and heart rate variability and understand that everybody adapts and responds to stress in their own unique way. And everybody has a, a unique perception of what stress is. And so because of that, you're going to have this mixed bag of athletes that are going to adapt really fast, like Bud Dupree's and athletes like myself, uh, whose adaptation rate is slower and therefore can't do the same volumes and intensities at the rates that some of these other guys are doing. And so that's where we came up with the concept of fluid periodization. So you remember when you came, you were coming, you test Omega Wave. Uh, I'd read all the results and then base your workout on what Omega Wave is telling me. Omega Wave was, for those that don't know, is just the measure of heart rate variability. 
and it's basically giving me an idea of what um, gas tank the athlete has that day, like how you know ready they are to train. And then a brain wave that basically tells me how well the brain can handle all these different stressors in their life. And based on those two measurements, I would match the level of readiness of the athlete that day to the level of training that they were getting ready to have in the weight room. So on any given day, an athlete could come in and say, we were supposed to do like five sets of squat. I may have them work up to one heavy set and then we'll just back off and then do some accessory work and get them out. And so if the readiness was low, I just matched that volume. And what we found was that when we did that, athletes uh, that followed this fluid model uh, had better performance outcomes at the end of the testing cycle and did less work. Um, so there was some validity in saying like, hey, if your body is stressed to max already, going into the weight room and adding another stress to a stress system is not beneficial, it's actually detrimental. Um, and so it's more of a let's train when the body's ready to receive that training load. And so from that, it kind of spun off into a bunch of different areas. I went to the University of Texas, where uh, that was my first job as the director of performance science out there. And then being out there for a year, Coach Stoops uh, brought me back to the University of Kentucky, where that's home. Uh, and that's where I'm at today. Can you actually, I want to go to that stress portion, because you do a good job of breaking down the fact that like we perceive training stress, whether it's you're doing orange theory and you're, you know, that's your thing, or you're doing Pilates or you're training, you know, you've got a garage gym and you're training hard. That is a stress generally, depending on the type of that you're imposing on your system. It's a good stress, but you, you talk about how stress in life, marital stress, job deadlines, all of that adds to your tank. If everyone can picture like a gas tank, it's all extracting from that. Can you give a little bit of background on that or like a, a bit further insight on why that is and, and what's happening? Right. Yeah. So I think you actually did a really good job of, of kind of simplifying that. So like you said, you're, everybody has a gas tank for an ability to adapt to things that put us outside of what, like homeostasis, for example. So like when blood sugar, we'll, we'll look at the most rigid things in the body that require the most attention, things like partial pressure of oxygen in the blood or blood glucose, things that are constantly needed uh, in the body for it to function, otherwise we die. Anytime that those deviate, so anyone that's ever had their blood sugar drop, right? You get really dizzy and then your heart speeds up. Well, every time that happens, your body has to pull a little bit of resources out to make sure we bring the blood sugar back up to baseline. And every time you tap into that tank, you're just pulling a little bit of gas and a little bit of gas. Now, the size of your gas tank is, is dictated by a few variables. Some of it's genetics. Bud Dupree had a massive gas tank. You know, it didn't matter what he did. He could do the worst things in the world and still have plenty of gas left in the tank. And then there's other people that, you know, have history of or high levels of anxiety, uh, perceive the world in a different manner. They, they're constantly pulling on that gas tank every day and doesn't leave anything else for training. You know, and you think about the body in general, it's one of the most, we call it anti-fragile, right? When you hurt it, it comes back stronger. That's what we do when we train in the weight room, right? We break ourselves down to build ourselves back up to become better. But it'll only do that if it has those reserves or the gas in the tank to do it. And so, you know, when you look at, uh, some of this anti-aging stuff and, and stress, what we're trying to do is optimize the body. Uh, so this is why blood work is extremely important because, you know, when people think of stress, they always go to, oh, I'm stressed at work or I, I got to have more money for this or I got to, you know, my family and this. But what they're not paying attention to is the underlying stresses that are occurring 24-7, blood sugars out of control, hypertension, 
um, you know, cholesterol levels are high. All this stuff that the body's been having to pull little pieces of gas all day, every day. And if it doesn't matter how much we meditate and how much we practice gratitude and all the things that reduce stress, if those things are happening 24 seven underneath, you know, you're always going to be in a state of low gas. And so, you know, this is why, you know, you look at some of the studies on metformin, which is a blood glucose drug is are coming out and saying it, it has these anti-aging properties because it normalizes blood glucose in the body. So you have these big dips and valleys. Um, and so we're kind of saving gas there. This is why aerobic training, uh, that zone two stuff that probably Eric talked about a lot. When you increase your aerobic capacity, that means we can increase our body's ability to carry oxygen in the body. Oxygen is needed 24 seven. It means it's more efficient. We don't use as much gas throughout the day. And so you, you try to find areas in your life where you can, you know, increase efficiency. And so if I look at an individual and say, hey, how can I help you the most? Well, let's get your diabetes under control. And then let's look at some, again, some weight loss. And let's look at these big things that are pulling that gas out 24 seven. And then we'll kind of sprinkle in some things like mindfulness and meditation and stuff that will help you deal with some of those external stresses like work and finances and relationships and all the other things that we perceive as stressful. I think that's interesting to hear because ultimately we only should focus on the things that we can control. And it's like, you know, 0.01% of the population is going to have a gas tank, the size of buds. Right. And I've, I've never liked this. Like people communicate pretty clearly that stress you want to, you know, stress is bad. Um, it can have these negative effects, but in most cases, like if you look at stress, like if you're a high achiever, if you want to accomplish anything meaningful in life, it's going to be met with adversity, which comes with stress. If you're not a high achiever and you just want to coast through life, bad things are going to happen and stress is going to come up. So controllable things that we can do to sort of be able to increase the size of our tank, or at least decrease the withdrawals that are happening that are under our control. I really like that you mentioned blood glucose and potentially I want to come back to that, but what else can we do to increase our, our, our tank, our reserve, or just mitigate some of the damage that comes along with like, let's just say like someone like me, I'm not going to, I'm not going to deviate from the path that I'm on and, and try to avoid stress. Like it's going to be there. So what do, what do I do? Or what is someone listening to that's going through a tough time, but they don't want to lose out on longevity and performance. Right. And and so that kind of goes back to there's, you know, without stress, you don't have adaptation. Right. So there's this optimal level of stress that we want to apply to our body and situation. So if we look at it from a, a work standpoint, you've got a lot of projects and a lot of deadlines coming up. Um, if you're out there and you have other stresses that are attacking the body, things that we control, like the diabetes and the blood pressure, and you're not moving, you're not exercising, you're not meditating, all those stresses in, in combination with the, this big work stress that you're in, encountering, they're going to compete for resources. And it's going to be like, I'm robbing Peter to pay Paul. And then eventually you're not very productive because you start to crash and then mental focus starts to drift. And so if I can control a lot of these other outside stressors in my life, I can focus a lot on the things that matter the most. And, you know, from a a productivity standpoint. And so whether that's at work, um, you know, attacking those deadlines, devoting a lot of our stress to those, uh, you know, type of work demands, but, you know, everyday strategies. And, and I was a big fan, even when you were at UK, we did a lot of headspace, right? A lot of mindfulness meditation. Um, and studies show that when we do mindfulness meditations, um, it allows us to uh, perceive stressful things as less stressful, if I, if that makes sense. So like 
we have a threshold in our brain that activates those stress centers. When something happens, it kicks it on. And then we kind of go down that spiral of stress. And so let's just say you're a road rager, for example, you get on the road and people piss you off and that activates your stress center. Like mindfulness meditation allows you to kind of basically raise that threshold where you don't get, you don't get triggered so much. And, it, and it's really a prevalent conversation right now, because if you, if anything like this election taught us, and social media is people started getting activating these stress centers over Facebook posts. But that has, you got to think what the stress center was meant to do to begin with. That was meant to get us out of really bad situations from an evolutionary standpoint, run from like dangerous things that could potentially kill us. And now we're allowing things like someone's difference of opinion activate those stress centers. And that's pulling gas from our gas tank. And it's funny, I'll joke with my wife when she gets upset when something gets posted. I'm like, was that really worth, you know, sacrificing your Peloton workout this morning? Like, come on, like, you know, little things like that. Um, you know, mindfulness kind of helps us be able to kind of, all right, that happened. It's not really stressful uh, and allows you to kind of compartmentalize it and move on. Uh, and so I'm a big fan of mindfulness meditation. I mentioned gratitude earlier. You know, we, I feel like for as well off as we are in the United States, no matter what your situation is, we're in a lot better place than many, 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 many people in this world, like third world countries. And we take a lot of things for granted. And so when I start getting upset in my own personal life about little things, I have to stop and realize like, hey, I got a, I got a roof over my head. I got a vehicle to get me to work. I got a wife, I got a child, everybody, lo- I think I'm loved. And um, that really kind of helps bring me back to, to center and be like, hey, whatever this is, it's, it's really not that bad. And so practicing gratitude has really been a big thing for me. But and then, uh, you know, finding your outlet. So, you know, exercise in the weight room is my outlet where I can go and, you know, bang on the weights for a little bit and get away from things that might be kind of bringing me down. And, you know, exercise, even at low intensities, is, is really good uh, for de- decreasing overall stress. That's good. That's part of the reason I wanted to talk to you, because I, I like to connect the dots for people on because we hear these like generic health advice things like, you know, don't look at screens before bed, it's going to disrupt your sleep. And if we don't understand the mechanism, or we don't understand what's actually happening, we don't really take it as serious. It's like, but if someone comes in and says, Oh, you get these cells in your eyes, they get more sensitive as the day goes on. And, you know, they're really sensitive at nighttime. It's and if you are looking at these bright lights in your screen, then you're gonna, you know, your brain, your melatonin response could be blunted. And that's going to prevent sleep. It's like, Oh, I'm actually going to take that kind of serious. Now I might actually reconsider staring at the TV before bed. So one of the, like, I just think movement is a huge deal. Like if you can get people moving, it's going to bleed into other areas of their life. So I'm curious to talk to you about what's actually happening in the body during, and then mainly after you train. So like, maybe we can stick with, with aerobic activity. Cause I know like you mentioned that on Eric's podcast, there's a lot of research around it what benefits are actually happening beyond just like, Hey, you get in better shape. Like why should someone engage in aerobic activity? Right. So, and, and Eric's real big on the low intensity steady state cardio too. And you remember when we played here, if, if you came in and you're redlining on the big wave, we would do a lot of low intensity steady state cardio on the bike. Uh, and a couple of things go on uh, when we do that, when we're, when we're working at levels that aren't too stressful, right. We're, we're working at a moderate level we're increasing blood flow to muscles. All right, so we're activating um, the, the sympathetic, the gas a little bit, 
But what happens at the end of exercise is you have this big parasympathetic, which is your body's break, big parasympathetic rebound. Um, and you have a release of endorphins, which also increase happiness. Um, and mainly the big thing with low intensity states like cardio is you're getting nutrients, the muscles, right? Oxygen carries a lot of nutrients. And so when we increase blood flow, just globally to working muscles, you have a much better effect. Um, now, this is kind of why when we were doing Omega Way, we wouldn't have someone that was redlining go out and do a bunch of high intensity, you know, running, right? Because then we're just basically taking their gas pedal that's already kind of pushed in and shoving it all the way in without really giving the body a, a way to kind of break uh, and recover. And so, you know, the big thing for a lot of people is if we increase that globally, if we increase exercise, we can increase blood flow, we can increase endorphins, we can increase their uh, caloric output which can help with uh, insulin sensitivity. And so for a lot of people, our cells uh, require energy. And when we eat, it's insulin's responsibility for giving that cell its energy. So insulin, it makes the cells more insulin sensitive, uh, which helps us with glucose control. And so, you know, everyone talks about diabetes and I'm sorry, I'm going down the blood glucose path, but when people aren't insulin sensitive, it basically leads to high levels of blood glucose and it leads to longer time periods where the blood glucose is high because we don't, insulin is not being able to get uh, glucose into the cells. And when insulin is not able to get glucose in the cells, that's when we get to prediabetes and when we get to prediabetes, we get to die by actual diabetes. And it, diabetes is probably one of the most stressful things on the body because it's always constantly fighting to keep blood glucose in check. Uh, and so just even doing low intensity, um, you know, cardiac output work helps blunt that uh, diabetic response by increasing your insulin sensitivity and glucose control. And so there's, there's several layers going on there with that, that type of exercise, but, um, you know, mainly endorphins, blood flow, insulin sensitivity, and glucose control are some big benefits that come from that type of activity. And it makes you more, you're saying it makes you more efficient while you're at rest. So obviously you get the endorphins and the blood flow during the exercise, but then what happens after like in, in the rest of your life? Yeah. So from like the training adaptation for, um, if we increase our aerobic capacity, uh, then cells 24 seven, it doesn't come as a bigger cost all day. So if we're really efficient at getting oxygen to our blood and blood to the cells and gives us energy, then no matter what we do in life, just getting up and going to the bathroom doesn't come as a bigger cost, right? Our heart rate doesn't have to get up as high. We're more efficient. So just everyday life becomes easier and so that was one big thing that i noticed with all the omega that i looked at the people that had the bigger aerobic capacities typically had less deviations from day to day to day in their omega wave scores which means their daily cost was much lower than some other people so you're you're essentially just increasing your it's another matter of increasing your resilience right so your your gas tank your capacity yeah interesting so when you're, when you're talking about things coming at less of a cost, I, I kind of want to go back to blood glucose because this is, this is withdrawing, like this is an unnecessary withdrawal from the tank. Mm -hmm. um, you've worn a CGM. I, I, I believe you refer to Eric to wear one. Mm -hmm. What did you, what did you learn from it? And then first, can you give a, a brief breakdown of why you would wear one and what information you're deriving from it? Yeah, so a, a continuous blood glucose monitor basically gives you 24 hour um, blood glucose levels. And I was most interested in it because I did a little experiment where I was taking metformin 
like I said, metformin is a drug that basically neutralizes uh, blood glucose to steady levels. So you don't get these big deviations. And then I wore one when I wasn't on blood glucose or when I wasn't on metformin, I wanted to see the difference. Um, but basically, um, the reason why I wanted Eric to wear it while I was wearing it is I wanted to see how I responded to different types of foods. Uh, there's studies that are coming out to say, okay, well, you know, you eat some Skittles and I eat some Skittles and literature says that it has a glycemic index of X, but your insulin shoots way up and mine doesn't. Like, so we know there's genetic differences in how people handle different carbohydrates. And so I kind of wanted to see what uh, foods were triggering these big blood glucose spikes and which foods weren't. Um, and then when I was on metformin, what I noticed is it did exactly what it was supposed to. So it brought my fasting blood glucose up to about 90 or 95, which clinically would be considered almost borderline high. But then even when I ate, it would only go up to, or when I would eat, it would only go up to like 110 and then crash right back down. Hmm. Um, and so when I wasn't on metformin, it could get up to 150, 160, and then start to come back down, even though my fasting blood glucose would stay around 60. So I had a, a lower fasting blood glucose off of it, um, but I didn't have these big spikes. So from an aging perspective, if I'm not having these big spikes in blood glucose, I'm not activating those centers nearly as much. Um, and so that was just, and, and, and for me, honestly, I was deciding whether I wanted to keep taking metformin or come off of metformin. I ended up staying on metformin because in my perspective, I was like, well, even if it raises it up a little bit, there's no deviations. I'm not activating my stress centers as much and becoming more efficient. Uh, so that's why I still continue to take it. Um, but yeah, and I know Eric was always big curious on blood glucose and, you know, his, his A1C and fasting blood glucose levels. So that's why I got him on it as well. If we're talking in layman's terms, blood glucose, just referring to blood sugar, most people are familiar with, you know, okay, high blood sugar, they think diabetes. And you mentioned that, that having elevated blood sugar is really stressful on the body, but I think a lot of people are unaware that whether or not they've been diagnosed with diabetes a lot of people, if you put a CGM on an average person, they may be having really wild blood glucose swings. Yeah. Um, and not many people are probably going to want to take metformin or even are aware of what that is, unless they, they listen, heard it on Joe Rogan or something like that. Yeah. Um, can you talk about, so, so we know just, you don't even have to understand the underlying, you know, what's happening at a physiological level. Just know blood elevated blood sugar, especially big spikes are probably not good very often. So what can people do from a lifestyle perspective to make sure that that doesn't happen? Right. So this goes back to kind of that, that, uh, exercise component, um, insulin sensitivity. And so basically when we have high blood sugar, that's when insulin gets released from the pancreas and it's responsible for bringing that blood sugar back down. Well, the only place for that blood sugar is to go is into the cells. And so think about a cell has a lot of different doors on it that allow uh, blood sugar to come in with insulin. When we don't exercise very much, you don't have as many doors, like, or those doors are closed. Um, and, you know, when we start to exercise and those cells start getting hungry, they start opening more doors because they're basically saying, hey, I need energy, I need energy, I need glucose. And if you do that frequently enough, those doors stay open. And so that's what we call becoming more insulin sensitive. And so when you do have blood glucose rise and all those doors are open, basically the insulin can just take all of it and shove it in those doors real quick and brings it back down. So it doesn't allow it to get up to high levels and it doesn't allow it to, to sustain. So think about like a lot of doors are shut and insulin's like trying to knock on doors like, hey, come get this glucose. And that's why it stays high for so long. And so that's a constant stress the body's having to do until it can bring it back down. 
Um, you know, I was a big intermittent faster. Uh, I did that when I was bodybuilding. I still do that from a lifestyle perspective because we have groups that start here at six in the morning. We're done around noon. So it just makes sense for me. And so there's some studies that show that fasting helps increase insulin sensitivity, because if you deprive the body of energy for, you know, an extended period of time, then those cells start doing those same things like, Hey, I'm hungry, open up some doors and you become more insulin sensitive. And so basically just any type of form of exercise. And I tell people they all, what kind of exercise is like, well, what do you like? You know, if, if you hate running, I'm not going to tell you to go run because you won't do it. Uh, or you might do it for a couple of weeks and realize you hate it. So Really, I think any type of exercise, um, you know, if you like weightlifting, go weightlifting. If you like doing, like to go out on walks, go out on walks. But we try to get people moving, you know, normal populations at least 150 minutes a week. That's our goal. And so if you've never exercised before, then we'll say, all right, let's just start at 30 and then build on that 45. And like people, I think people, when they get into this and they're like, oh, I'm going to go 150 right now, they don't build into it. And then, you know, the first week that it doesn't happen perfectly, they're like, Oh, I can't do this. It's too hard. And so I think building into those type of exercise programs is really important so you can make it sustainable. So movement, uh, we're right back to movement being a big deal. And you, we talked a little bit about aerobic training. Can you even just give a, some clarity on what that is? Because if someone's listening, going, okay, I want to inc increase my insulin sensitivity. I'd like to get some of those benefits from an endorphin standpoint an efficiency standpoint, like what should I do? I'm sitting at, at home right now. What do I do? Yeah. And, and so when we talk about aerobic, uh, we're not talking about like your Peloton classes that you're getting up into like zone four and zone five, like 90% of your heart rate max. Like this is just some steady state 65, around 65, 70% of your heart rate max at, at a level that you can still have a conversation with a person walking next to you. Uh, it doesn't have to be like a, you know, it needs to be somewhat challenging, but not to the point where you're out of breath and you can't communicate. So it's like, like a moderately out of breath. Yeah. Kind of. Okay. We're working, but we're not, you know, straining. And it's not to say that Peloton's, but I do Peloton. I have a Peloton. Uh, but, you know, for just increasing movement and exercise, you know, those, those starting at those zone twos. And then once we get 150 minutes a week, then we might start experimenting with some high intensity. There's some good stuff with high intensity work. Uh, we just can't do that stuff all the time. Otherwise, the body starts to break down and we can't you know, recover. But that's a whole nother uh, conversation. Where would the benefit come in? So outside of aerobic, now we're looking into training weights at a, maybe a higher intensity or people like people love doing high intensity interval type stuff. Where would the benefits come in there from a overall health and maybe a longevity standpoint? And so now we're starting to see a lot of the studies on longevity and muscle mass. So individuals that maintain higher levels of muscle mass tend to have higher levels of longevity. Um, you know, creatine is, is something that we took, I still take every day. We're seeing that if even aging populations that don't do a lot of resistance training, it helps them from losing muscle mass they already have. And so, you know, adding creatine into your diet, uh, either supplementing it, uh, with powders or pills, and then even low, um, it doesn't have to be, depending on your, your age, like it doesn't have to be like your one RM stuff, like the stuff that people go in and maxing out, but just challenging the muscles uh, sufficiently enough to kind of stimulate or maintain the muscle mass that you already have. 
uh, is sufficient from a longevity standpoint. Unless, I mean, like for me, for example, I like to load up the bar and that's what keeps me in the gym and keeps me going. So like I said, I always tell people, whatever you like to do uh, that keeps you moving and burning calories, it's, it's all going to have good benefits. So for the most part, most of the type of training, whether people are doing, you know, one of their spin classes or something like that, you're probably going to get higher elevated heart rate there. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're going to re- receive a good deal of these longevity or health benefits from just any movement that you can do surfing, whatever. Right. Yeah. And, and so when we start getting into those higher intensities and those big weightlifting conversations, it's, you know, that becomes more of a conversation of, you know, those come at a much higher cost than like zone two cardio. Um, and, and you have to kind of have an honest, you know, conversation with yourself. If I can't manage these external stresses and more importantly, if I'm not getting seven to eight to nine hours of sleep, non stretching, but anywhere between seven and nine, then going out every day and doing high intensity interval training and weightlifting, eventually your body's not going to be able to adapt and it's basically going to get you hurt. So we can't maintain those high levels of stress if we're not putting in the work to recover. You can only stress your body as much as your ability to recover. And so that's that kind of other piece that offloading and sleep becomes a massive component. And I know you and Eric kind of talked a lot about that, but you know, that's why we always say that those, those lower intensity zones are gonna give you the, the most bang for your buck longevity without coming at a massive cost to the body. Yeah. People will talk about increasing resilience, like, or or when they go to recovery modalities, a lot of times, Eric, and I touched on this as well. When when you mentioned you can only stress your body as much as you can recover. um, People tend to think, oh, like I'm going to get in the Normatec boots and I'm going to get in the ice bath. And we kind of already touched on like, that's probably not the best idea or the most useful part of your time. Mm -hmm. But when you were talking earlier about even like headspace and mindfulness, and I don't know, like, most people don't have access to sensory deprivation tanks. But I think the idea of sensory deprivation can be extrapolated out to everyday life. So if you are someone who's just like, I like to push it, and I like to train hard, and I want to increase my resilience outside the weight room so that I can do more. Can you explain maybe if, if, if it's mindfulness and meditation is kind of what you're thinking, like what that's doing and why we should do it or other modalities you would think of. Yeah. And so all those things that you had mentioned, Manas, I'm not a big fan of ice baths or cryo in general um, for non-competing athletes, but you know, like the Normatex and the contrast baths and those things are good, but they're, they, they come nowhere close to making sure that your nutrition's dialed in and you're sleeping. Right. So like it doesn't matter what fancy gadgets I have, my E-stems, my Normatex, if I don't eat enough calories uh, and I don't eat enough protein in my diet, I'm not going to recover. It doesn't matter what I do from a recovery standpoint. If I'm not sleeping, I'm not going to have the hormonal response that I need to recover. And it doesn't matter. The Normatex aren't, aren't just going to magically make that happen. Those little modalities are more geared towards just kind of increasing blood flow and nutrients post-workout to kind of help speed up the recovery process, but never, ever replace nutrition and sleep. And so for people, and I had this conversation with an individual not too long ago, maybe last week, it's, you know, hey, what can I do to this exact conversation? Like, how can I keep pushing the limit? And I'm like, well, you could tell this was a very type A, very motivated person that kind of broke down their life. And they're only getting four to five hours of sleep a night. And I'm like, it doesn't matter what I tell you, that that will always be your limiting factor. And um, 
you know, I, I can't stress that to these guys uh, in this facility enough that most of your good uh, hormones for, you know, repair and, you know, rebuild are released between 10 p.m. and 2 a.m. from a circadian rhythm standpoint. Uh, and if you're up playing Fortnite till 12 o'clock, you're missing a really good window of adaptation right there. Um, and so, you know, I think for a lot of people, it just kind of goes against like the American culture. It's always grind, grind, grind. If I, if I don't get enough sleep, it's because I'm trying to, you know, extend my career and work hard and, you know, sleep later type attitude. And, you know, what we're finding out is that's just leading to burnout. It's leading to metabolic disease and it's leading to just a really unhealthy population. So, um, you know, now if you're asleep and, uh, nutrition are on point, we're eating enough to recover, we're sleeping enough to recover, then, you know, mindfulness meditation is just one of my favorite things to do to help global stress adaptation. Because like I said, it, it raises that threshold of what else, what other things in your life kind of trigger that stress response. Like you don't get angry at things. You don't, if you have gratitude in your life, you're like, this isn't really that bad. Like it doesn't activate centers that, you know, would normally kind of pull from that gas thing. And it happens at the subconscious level. That's what the beauty of it is. Um, and, you know, people just start to feel better and they feel more focused at work. Uh, they're able to take a stressful situation and process it. That this so it has that connection with the frontal lobe that deals with emotion and, and be able to dissect it and be like, all right, I can break this up in smaller parts and I'm fine. Versus like going into panic mode, activating your stress center, pulling from your gas tank. And so 10 minutes of mindfulness meditation, three days a week has been shown to increase people's just overall resilience uh, by doing nothing but just kind of breathing and being mindful in the moment. So Obviously, like if I had to pick a recovery modality like Normatec or contrast bass, like if you could do meditation 10 minutes a day, three days a week, it's going to have far superior benefits than any one of those. You're saying it raises your threshold. Is it is it doing that by way of training you subconsciously to be able to call on your parasympathetic nervous system under greater control or what's the mechanism? Right. And so basically you have a, a stress center in your brain. Uh, it's the amygdala. So the hippocampus and the amygdala talk to each other. And then those centers go to your frontal lobe. So your frontal lobe is what's responsible for like arousal and emotional control. It's basically like your, uh, your reasoning mechanism in your brain. And so something will happen in the environment, whether that's like uh, someone cuts you off on the road. Uh, signal goes to the amygdala and the amygdala says like, hey, frontal lobe, like, do we need to be mad about this? Uh, and the frontal lobe communicates back, like, yes, be pissed off it, in kind of a layman's term. But what it does with meditation, it just allows you to take that signal. And basically, what triggers the amygdala, it, it, it takes a much higher level of that stimulus to even for it to be like, hey, stressful wow. event. Hey, frontal lobe, hey, figure this out. And so those it just doesn't even go to that center anymore. And so you just don't seem to activate that, that amygdala frontal lobe response nearly as much uh, than you would in normal life. Wow. So stress is like when the amygdala is responding, it doesn't necessarily know whether that's stress coming from someone cutting you off or stress because you're in an argument with your spouse or stress because you're getting ready to maybe speak on stage, right? It's just responding to the, the, the stimulus of stress. Yeah. And then the, the frontal lobe's job to decipher what that stress is and do I need to be stressed. So if you're implementing something like this, you said 10 minutes, three times a week, you're 
going to be more capable in dealing with disagreements, maybe even speaking like nerves, all that kind of stuff. Correct. And so just, and, and I've done it for a long time. Um, and, and just like anything, I, I, I'm good about it in certain ways and you, and I can see it in my heart rate variability today, like weeks that I'm very consistent with my meditation, my HRV starts to creep up. So HRV was my global like stress, how, how my body's handling stress. And so when I meditate more frequently, that the HRV starts to go up, which means I'm getting a little bit more parasympathetic or vagal tone, which means things aren't stressing my system nearly as much, which makes me happy because then I can go into the weight room and stress myself a little bit more. And so for people, like I said, that like to grind, 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 grind and push the limits, like, well, if you become more efficient and pull more gas in the tank, then you can put that gas towards things you want to adapt to, like getting bigger, faster, stronger. I like that you're mentioning HRV one, because I know your thesis was around HRV. You've done quite a bit of research on this. And I also think it's something back to sort of helping people connect the dots. HRV is a number that we can look at and we can start to quantify things. And I think that helps people take things a little bit more seriously when you see your HRV tank or rise based on a behavior that you implemented. Can you give the, like the layman's term on what HRV is? So heart rate variability um, is an analysis of the time in between individual beats. And so it's not heart rate. A lot of people confuse it with heart rate. Heart rate is basically just how many beats happen within a time period. But this is actually measuring the time in between each um, little QRS complex. It measures that and it gives me a number. Um, the body likes to give, uh, in a perfect world, like things work autonomously, like automatically. Um, let, me, let me back this up. So like when you're, when you're really stressed, uh, or when you have a lot of things in your body that your body's having to respond to either from a mental stress or from a physiological stress like diabetes, it has to put things on basically uh, lockdown mode. So it's going to say, all right, heart, you're going to beat at this exact same time. Uh, and I'm going to keep you there because I can't allow you to go and deviate because I don't have the capacity to kind of basically respond to that. If that makes sense. Um, when there's not a lot of stress in the system, the heart rate can have a lot more flexibility. And so anybody that's ever like gone from like a seated position to standing up real quick and they got kind of dizzy and they felt their heart speed up, that's basically a system that is really flexible. There was a stress that happened, which means your pressure and your blood dropped. And then their brain responded by saying heart rate speed up real quick uh, to kind of compensate that for it. Someone that's really, really stressed out, it wouldn't have that ability to do that, if that makes sense, because it's dealing with a lot of other different stressors. And so your heart rate wouldn't be able to speed up as much. and You'd probably get dizzy and you'd pass out. Uh, I know that's really hard without kind of visualizing what that is, but basically when there's a ton of stress on the system, it tells the heart to beat at the exact same time, which means heart rate variability is going to be low. When there's not a lot of stress on the system, basically the heart rate can respond to a bunch of different other things. Like, so if your blood pressure drops, it can kind of speed up. Or if, um, let's see, if, you know, when you're breathing, like the normal pattern breathing, your heart rate speeds up and slows down based on pressures. And so, you know, when the heart rate is like that, I know that there's not a lot of other stress on the system. And so I can kind of use that as a proxy to determine, all right, this athlete, something's going on. Like this athlete's getting ready to get sick. 
or this athlete has a traumatic event that just happened or this, you know, athlete has had chronic stress. Like, and we had several athletes when you play that came in and redlined every single day. Um, and there was a defensive lineman you probably remember that was a little out of sorts and you could probably make that correlation, you know what I'm talking about. So, um, but they always reported on their wellness scores. They were always reporting more soreness than everybody. They were always at more at risk for injury. And we had several players like that had catastrophic injuries while we were here because their body simply couldn't recover. I know you can, I've, I've seen this in action where, and I want to clarify too, the part of the reason we're talking about HRV is this is something that a lot of people listening can even measure themselves. If you have an Apple watch, as long as it's not like the oldest version, I think most of the newer versions are already giving you HRV. You just don't know it. Um, there's aura ring, there's whoop band. Maybe we can get into that in a separate time, but it's a useful tool I'm just curious because I know you can sort of alter your HRV in real time based on just changing your breathing. You, you exhale, your diaphragm moves down or sorry, up, right? Compresses the heart a little bit, smaller volume, blood flows quicker and you can, the heart will slow down. But is this something that your brain can perceive? And so, so if it's a marker of readiness and you can alter it just by how you're breathing, are you also altering potentially your state? Yep. And so there's been a lot of studies on that. Uh, you can do, you can alter your breathing. You can go into meditative state breathing because med meditative state breathing, where we take those big, long inhales and exhales, that puts us, that activates the parasympathetic nervous system. And which is one reason why meditation works is we're constantly activating that, that break. Um, and so my preference uh, when it comes to HRV is either to take it when someone doesn't even know that it's happening. Uh, I like nocturnal HRV because they have no control over their breathing rate. It happens naturally. So the number that I get when someone is sleeping uh, is actually a pretty good indicator of what their readiness is at time. So like if I came in and did my Omega right now, I could go into meditative state of breathing and increase my readiness. Is that a true indicator of readiness? No, because I artificially enhance that by doing meditative breathing. And so I can throw that score off. And so I think it's really important no matter what you do, like whatever measure you're using, either you do paced breathing all the time, which means there's a cadence, right? So like the breathe app on your watch, kind of if you go into that kind of cadence breathing and you only use that HRV measurement for your readiness, you could potentially use that as a marker. It just has to be the conditions have to be the same every single time uh, for you to really be able to use it. This is why I like Aura because they do it while you sleep. I mean, I saw, I think you have an Aura ring on, I've got an Aura ring on, like, mm -hmm. you know, it, it at least eliminates my ability to control my respiration rate and it gives me more of a true marker of how i'm recovering uh throughout the night so um that's not, and that's what makes hrv difficult if, if you're not doing it consistently you're not doing it um with the same environment like did you drink coffee because coffee is going to increase your sympathetic nervous system and it's going to lower your score and that may not be a true indicator readiness so picking things that measure hrv uh at a time where movement is low so obviously sleep uh, because your eye watch, I'm eye watch sample me today when I was training and it shoves my HRV way low. And then I look at my, my, my trend and it looks like I'm tanking when I'm not really tanking. And so this is why I think using some sort of metric like your O-ring 
Um, I'm not a big fan of whoop. That's a, that's an entirely different conversation for another day, but, um, something that gives you some sort of feedback on how your behavioral interventions are impacting or impacting your stress. You notice that being between your continuous glucose monitor and the aura ring, do you notice it naturally regulating your behavior? Like, well, it's definitely, uh, when it, it definitely gives you feedback to know if you're doing something good or you're trending in the wrong direction. Mine's easy. If I'm not getting eight hours of sleep consistently, I start to tank. My soreness starts to increase. Um, you know, I tend to not have great days in the gym. Um, it's all centered around my sleep. HRV starts to tank, resting heart rate starts to go up. And so I'm, I'm pretty predictable now. I've been wearing these things for so long that I know that the behaviors, the bad behaviors that I do are going to impact um, my scores. So, but it's good for someone that's never done it. And it's just like when someone starts using my fitness pal for the first time, it's a massive awareness tool. Like I didn't know that side of range dressing have 40 grams of fat and I'm never going to do that again. Or I didn't know that having six whiskey sours was going to tank my HRV and disrupt my deep sleep. Like it just kind of opens your eyes to things that we do and how it impacts, you know, you know, downstream things. How are you able to, because I think across a lot of spectrums, you've achieved a, a level of maybe success that there are other people in your field and even outside the field that are, they're wanting to do like, you know, you're here right now. Would you, is a director of performance? Is that, or director of performance science Yep. at Kentucky? Um, you know, there's a lot of strength coaches that would like to be in shoes like that. And then also we were chatting before we started, like you're pretty sizable right now, yeah. staying in really good shape, training hard. You're able to man, you're clearly able to manage load. Mm -hmm. How have you been able to find, cause I think consistency is the biggest thing we always talk about. Like, how are you able to find that consistency? Well, a lot of it comes down to like my wife and I are on the same page with a lot of this stuff, which is really helpful. Like she understands, um, with sleep, right. We have a, a 14 month old child. And like, so we invested a lot in getting our child to sleep through the night, whether it was luck or, or not, like we got her sleep in eight hours by the time she was eight weeks old. And, and so she knows like, Hey, when it's time to go to bed, we need to go to bed. Our lives are structured around making sure that we are recovering first and foremost with sleep, because we know that that leads to, you know, if we don't get enough sleep, then, then arguments happen and things like start triggering us that shouldn't be triggering us. And it just, it leads to a bunch of bad marital things. Um, you know, and I'm really fortunate where I work, I'm set up, I'm like, I'm sitting in my recovery room right now, uh, with the Norman Tex, and I've got like a million dollar weight room and, you know, a nutrition center, but you know, all this stuff is, is pretty much planned every day. Like I plan to be in bed at nine 30 and I plan to get eight hours. And then I know that I'm going to eat these things after my workout and I know what I'm having for dinner tonight. And a lot of that stuff's already been like my habit, you know, from my, my bodybuilding days of just tracking everything. Um, you know, I just put a, a priority on my health. Like I get blood work four times a year, uh, to make sure that, you know, things are operating smoothly there. So, you know, people invest in different areas of their life. I, I think, um, you know, some people invest more in recreation and like going camping and going fishing and going on trips. And, and I think that stuff's important, but, um, you know, 
I just have a really good support structure here with my, my, my family that we all are all on the same page from a nutrition and from a sleep standpoint and an ability to train at a high level here in the weight room. Um, but, you know, it didn't happen overnight. Like this has just been like one small habit at a time. Like, so it's like, all right, training was easy because we were former athletes. Like it's easy to get in the weight room and train. Um, so there wasn't any barriers there. Tracking food was really, really difficult for probably it didn't get easy until about 10 to 12 weeks in before I became kind of a creature of habit and things started happening naturally. So now when I track my food, it's super simple. Um, and then I really didn't start prioritizing sleep until maybe the last, you know, three or four years because I saw what it did to my heart rate variability. So it's just been one little habit that I've tried to perfect at a time. Um, and then I don't know what I'm on to the next thing. I'm always looking at like the continuous blood glucose monitor and that stuff and seeing how that affects my health. So, you know, you can't take on all this at once. It has to be just a very intentional effort in one of those areas. You know, like, hey, let's just try to get you moving because that's that's some low hanging fruit that, you know, is going to make you feel better right off the bat. When you get to that, hey, let's start looking at what you're eating. And then when you get good to that, then let's try some of these other things. And so I think just people have to have an appreciation for the quantified self and know like, hey, when I do these things, my weight starts to drop. I start to have more energy and my HRV starts to go up. I know we're, we're approaching the closing here, but you mentioned something a second ago about uh, even just like within marriage, like when you guys are on the same page with you're both sleeping, things are kind of pre-scheduled and you're, you're on this routine with your eating. Do you notice even going back to, you said three years ago or so you started to take sleep seriously. Do you notice even just the dynamics of family environment and, and marriage, like being in a better spot when those things are optimized? Is there a clear difference? Oh, absolutely. You know, and, and you could, so when Maddie, Maddie was four weeks early. And so those first two weeks were tough because we were having to do uh, basically like I was having a finger feeder with like a syringe and because every two hours. So our sleep was starting to tank. Um, the only saving grace in that is that we tried really hard to have Maddie. So we had a sense of gratitude when she came. So like when we were kind of pissed off at the situation, we were just grateful that she was here and that kind of helped us through that. But there's days, I mean, you know, my wife sees, I mean, she's an orthodontist and there's days that she sees 120 patients a day. And so like her gas tank by the end of the day is just diminished. And like, it might be a day that I had, you know, DEXA scan and people starting at six in the morning and we had practice and then I trained and then so we both get home and we're both just exhausted like we've basically you know used up all of our gas and just little things like you know maddie's not having a great night we start to kind of get those frustrations with each other so if you add poor sleep on top of that then things start to trigger right we run out of gas you know we're clearly frustrated with the situation and it obviously is going to impact how we kind of work together as a team because we're both exhausted uh and so sleep is kind of that great offsetter to kind of help us um, that's the last, that's a controllable thing that we can do to keep us from, you know, getting to that point. Everything comes back to sleep. It's like when you, when you optimize that, it's like the, the domino. Well, yeah, because even then, like you don't get enough sleep and Eric talked probably a lot about that is like, we're our ability to handle blood glucose. We don't have as efficient blood glucose. We start to grab sugary things that, you know, because we, we feel tired and we know that the sugar gives us kind of a reward response and a quick energy boost, but then we end up crashing right back down. And it's just a cascade of things that, you know, when we don't get enough sleep, it can happen. They're just not, not optimal. 
man well that's that's a way to wrap it up right there i think that's you are a wealth of knowledge a lot of a lot of school to um kind of get me to that point but yeah and good athletes to work on like you yeah i mean that's a level of exposure that most people will never have in their lifetime so it's yeah. i think we have a lot to learn i'm excited for people to hear this because i think there's going to be a, a ton that they can extract from it good yeah no it's honestly with my life now i enjoy athletics uh i really do like our guys but you know, there's so much that we can do just from like the general population, like helping these people understand like, hey, just get out and move more and you'll feel better. Get your diabetes under control and you'll feel better. And just increasing people's longevity has a much, has a really high reward center. Um, so a lot of my focus and energy right now is just on, because human optimization, I mean, it's the same thing for athletes. We're just doing it in the general pot. Like if I can make you more efficient in day to day, then man, you're, you're going to live life longer, man. I gotta, I'll, I'll stop recording. So this doesn't get anywhere, but, um, I gotta know. And that wraps up my interview with Dr. Chris Morris. I was going to cut that last part out, but for some reason it just kind of amused me to leave it in there and cut it out right as I was about to ask something moderately secretive, but Chances are most people didn't make it all the way to the end anyways. If you did, I'm kind of curious about it. If you made it to that part and your curiosity was piqued. Sometimes I just like to have fun with this. Editing can be one of the most brain-numbing activities of all time, so I have to amuse myself from time to time. But I hope you enjoyed this interview. Thank you so much for listening, if you listened at all, especially if you listened this far. Have a great week, stay strong, and I will see you on the next one.